if you're not a company that's focusing on these and moving forward, you're going to see a big reallocation of capital out of your stock. Your stock is going to underperform. And somebody else in your industry is moving more advanced, more quickly. They're going to get more of those inflows because they're going to be more in the sustainability indexes. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a bigger variance right now, Hank, between the companies are moving forward and the companies are stagnating. And you're seeing that in their multiples. And that's just beginning. We're not going to get to a decarbonized world at the path we're going right now unless we can really start investing in new technologies and rapidly come up with some breakthroughs. It is just not going to happen fast enough. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. Today, I'm speaking with Larry Fink. Larry is founder, chairman, and chief executive officer of BlackRock. He co-founded BlackRock in 1988, and under his leadership, the firm has grown into a global leader in investment and technology solutions. Larry has been named one of the world's greatest leaders by Fortune, and Barron's has named him one of the world's best CEOs for 15 consecutive years. Today, he and BlackRock are leaders in driving and accelerating sorely needed action on climate change. So Larry, welcome to the podcast. I remember back in the 80s when you were innovating and building first Boston's mortgage finance business. It was a big deal when you left to found BlackRock in 1988. Who would have guessed that today BlackRock would be the largest asset management company in the world with $9 trillion in management. But I want to start at the beginning. Tell our listeners about how you first became interested in business and in finance. Well, thank you, Hank, and thank you for having me. I think I always had some sales desire from when I was a young child. Uh, my father owned a shoe store, and my parents asked me to work at the shoe store starting at 10 years old. And so I, I, I learned responsibility. I learned about inventories. I learned about how to make a sale of a pair of shoes. I think as you personally know, I was a collector of reptiles and I used to sell them to zoos <laughs> uh, and, and to other, uh, other you know, collectors throughout uh, the United States. And so I always believed uh, that I had some inkling toward business and finance. When I went to UCLA, I had a political theory background. I enjoyed, you know, understanding political theory, but, you know, my intention was to uh, either go into academia like my mother was or go into business. And I was lucky enough to be asked to go from undergraduate right into graduate school. And from there, doors started opening for me. Most importantly, ideas opened up for me. And it was very clear to me, even as a young kid in LA in the 70s, that Wall Street was, uh, was a place where I wanted to go. And so graduating from grad school at 22, I moved to New York and started at First Boston. And within weeks, I knew this is something I could do quite well. And, you know, as you mentioned, I was placed on the mortgage desk when it was only three people. And from that period of time, we grew it into a very large business. And, but I think the whole the issue around business and finance was something that I witnessed from my father in a very small, in a, in a small business way, but uh, I learned how to deal with people, work with people, 
And then my entrance to uh, Wall Street was just an eye-opener, and I just became fascinated with capital markets and the role of capital markets and how capital markets can shape economies and shape the future of economies. And it was very clear to me from the formation of the mortgage securities market how that was going to change housing finance in America. And so to me, it was all these big picture ideas. But, you know, if we could chop off 200 basis points in a mortgage for an average homeowner, many more uh, homeowners could afford, you know, buying a home. And so it was always a big concept, big picture ideas. And and even today now, uh, you know, 45 years into finance, every day, Hank, I'm learning something new. I'm still growing. I'm still fascinated. And it's still a lot of fun. It's amazing, Larry, because I've always said that great leaders, even from the time they're very young, define the job expansively. And, you know, so in addition to selling, you were an innovator and you had the big picture because there was great innovation going on. Yes. But I, I want to move right now to Larry the Entrepreneur because I always believed that one of the most valuable things someone could do was to create a business. So what did it take to create BlackRock? So it's one thing when you're on the first Boston mortgage desk, you're helping to create a new industry really as part of that effort. But starting your own company is something different. What were the biggest obstacles you faced and what was the most important lessons you learned or the biggest failures you had to overcome? Well, I think the genesis of the idea of BlackRock really came from my failure at First Boston. It was the ashes of failure that created the ideas of BlackRock. As you know, I had this incredible career. I was the youngest managing director ever. I was the youngest member of the executive committee of First Boston until in 1986, we lost money. Actually, if you dissected the mortgage book, we had back then, we probably should have been fired when we made all the money because of the amount of risk we were taking. We really did not have the appropriate risk tools to understand what a leveraged trading book could look like. And But when we made a lot of money, they loved me. And then that one quarter when we lost money and they all hated me, that was a life learning experience that I promised myself I would never endure that again. A, the partnership that I thought I had at the firm was not existent. They liked me when I made money. They didn't like me when I did make money. And I yearned for the ideal of having partners who you could trust. And when there is a fire, we all run into the fire together, cauterize it, correct it, and move on. And, and so it was the ashes of the failure at First Boston of not understanding the appropriate risk we were taking as a investment banking firm, but more importantly, the knowledge that Wall Street was innovating faster than our clients. Wall Street was at the probably the height of innovation in those 80s, whether it was from the swap market, derivatives all began, all that was the height of innovation. And Wall Street was innovating much faster than the investors were understanding. And so the concept around BlackRock was if we could develop risk tools to help us analyze our risk, we could make a difference. And so the formation of BlackRock was all about having risk tools that we could rely on that we could navigate. And I remember, Hank, when we started the company, I told that concept to people and said, what are you, you know, why do you have to worry about risk if you're, if you're just a good investor? 
but it ultimately caught on and you know over 25 percent of the people we hired were uh, uh, in technology and so we the whole foundation of what we started was technology so i mean you started in wall street around the same time i did the entrepreneurialism Wall Street in the 70s and early 80s was pretty enormous then. Then it grew into this giant industry. I mean, when, when I started at first Boston in 1976, the training program was 12 people. I think when I was interviewing Goldman that year, it was 30 people. It was still, we were operating in a very cottage industry. So there may be big companies today like BlackRock is today, but back then it was pretty small. It wasn't as entrepreneurial. And so to me, from going from First Boston, then that was then a bigger company, a much bigger company, to starting my own company was I wanted to take responsibility of what we can do. But importantly, I wanted to work around people I could trust. I wanted to be always forward focused, not looking backwards. And most importantly, I wanted to find a vehicle in which we could inform our clients and, and, and building a trusting firm. And so they were pretty simple concepts, but it worked. And it sure did. And Larry, the interesting thing is I've often said if someone has a bad idea in finance, you really don't have to worry that much about risk because it doesn't take off. But when someone has a really good idea, okay, and it takes off very quickly and becomes very big, then risk management becomes very, very important. Yes. And I think the experience you had early on at Boston really informed the way you built BlackRock were some of the things that made it so, you know, incredibly valuable to me when I was Treasury Secretary yes. and when, when you were helping us during the financial crisis. Because yes. you sure understood what was going on in those markets. And, and some of the work you did for the New York Fed then was really pretty terrific. Now, I would like to move now to uh, climate change, because today you and BlackRock are driving uh, the private sector action on climate change. You gave a groundbreaking speech on climate change at the G20 in Italy this summer. Recently wrote an important op-ed in the New York Times calling on the major rich countries to give the private sector the tools they need to meet the climate challenge, which is emerging in the markets. I want to get to some of those arguments in a few minutes. But first, what made you focus on climate change and how do you assess the risks of climate change? Well, I always believed I was a personally a uh, conservationist. I do it, I'm a great steward about the land that I own. I always believed that I was an environmentalist personally. But in my role as a CEO of BlackRock, the number one responsibility is a fiduciary. And I can't put my own interests in front of my clients' interests. And so it's really walking a pretty delicate balance originally that, okay, I, I cannot put my feelings about climate risk in front of my clients' needs um, as a fiduciary, especially as the laws of the United States are pretty rigid related to the fiduciary standard rules of the United States in terms of investing on behalf of pension funds. And so it was really a combination of events personally and professionally. That all occurred from 2018 to 2019, where I believe now the end result was professionally, I now have to become a, uh, a conservationist, environmentalist, professionally, not just personally. And what occurred was, whether it was I, uh, I was uh, in Australia with my wife, seeing the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, whether I was in southern Africa with my wife, 
and seeing the great delta be dried out and the drought in South Africa and the destruction of the environment there. And whether it was myself and a bunch of friends fly fishing in Alaska in August and there were fires everywhere because the temperature was so high that there actually had lightning hits and storms. And as a result of it, more and more fires. And and we saw just, you know, a dramatic decline in, in water volume in the rivers. And so those in three different continents, witnessing that more than just individual events, but these were episodic events that will, that really is just part of a bigger picture. That's climate change. Then at the same time, and this is being a student of, of the markets and a student of finance. The beauty of finance, when finance understands a problem, whether if the problem's in 20 years or 30 years, we present value that problem. We bring that problem forward. And what I, what I witnessed in 2019, and it, prior to that, in 2018, I wrote a CEO letter about purpose and the responsibilities of a corporation. But in 2019, I would say, during the course of the IMF meetings, the UN meetings of fall, traveling to Asia, traveling to the Middle East and Europe and South America, 30% of every conversation during that period of time was, what should I think about climate risk? How should I think about them? And it was an epiphany that a conversation that was so nascent two years earlier with any client became one of the most talked about conversations and how should they play it. It was very clear to me that finance and the investment industry is finally catching on to the risk of climate. And that's what I wrote then in my January 2020 letter that climate risk is investment risk. And it was the first time where I really could see now the impact of how climate risk is going to play on our portfolios. Two-thirds of our assets of the nine-plus trillion dollars we manage are retirement assets, long duration, long liabilities, and we have to be focusing focusing on the eventuality of how these things shape. And and so it was very, it was epiphany for me, and and it was probably one of the proudest moments of my 30-odd years at BlackRock was I was writing the letter. I write the letter September and October then. And I was, I knew my letter was going to, it was moving faster than the firm, the firm BlackRock was moving. And so we disseminated the letter or the proposed letter to all my senior uh, leaders. And then they had working groups with their investors, like our, you know, our active investors or passive investors across the board, fixed income to equities to alternatives. And what came back, Hank, from my investors was something even more expansive than my first draft of my letter. It was, and I didn't have to push them. It wasn't me pushing my team. I brought my team this far, and then my team pushed me even further. And it was like a, it was a, a great proud moment of an idea you know, articulating this idea to our investors, and then I, I was able to push my letter even further. We came out with a, a second letter for our clients, and it was very clear to us from all the conversations, and then hence, in the last two years, the 
sustainable investment community has now raised $4 trillion of assets, $4 trillion, of which BlackRock raised $400 billion. So we're responsible for about 10% of the inflows globally. And this is just the beginning. As I wrote in my letter, this is going to be a tectonic shift in finance. And I do believe that's going to be the case. Uh, what we are doing, just like when we started the firm, uh, based on technology and data, we probably singularly are moving faster than any firm in developing analytical data uh, analysis on how we can measure climate risk on assets. For instance, Hank, we now have tools that we could use satellite technology, overlay a model of climate change, overlay, let's say, water table changes because of climate change. We could tell you how that mortgage-backed security is going to be impacted by climate change. We could tell you what that commercial piece of real estate should be if, if we have that. And so we're developing very good analytics to show why climate risk is investment risk. And we're also rapidly now trying to, through better disclosures at the corporate level, have better analytical analysis of how each company is moving forward on their sustainability effort and how are they moving in the transition. So all of this is going to be ultimately about quantification of climate risk, quantification of how companies are moving forward in addressing their own unique different issues related to climate risk. And hopefully this will lead to a, a, a revolution in finance. Yeah, Larry, and I'm, I'm seeing this as the executive chairman of the TPG Rise Climate Fund, where I'm talking with all kinds of companies. And you made a very important point that finance looks to the future, right? And markets look to the future. Yep. And so you know, we saw that big time with cellular where the volume was still with landlines and the yellow pages and the markets valued cellular companies. Yes. So, so, and that's got to be one of the big, big <clears throat> shifts that's taking place in the business world. But I want to have a follow-up question here because any CEO will tell you that the constituencies they care about are first and foremost their shareholders, right? The owners of their business. And then the regulators, their customers, their employers. Now, you're a big shareholder, and you clearly focus, as we've just been talking about, this big time on climate change. But as you know, many investors have been slow, okay, to wake up and demand that businesses disclose and manage climate risk like any other business risk. Mm -hmm. You've clearly made that shift. To what extent are other investors now, you know, focused on climate risk? How, how do you see that? From my vantage point, everybody has to have that climate risk as a lens, no different than any other risk today. If you don't have that, you're not going to be a fiduciary for your the asset owner's money. I think more than ever before. And in terms of corporate disclosures, as you framed it, I mean, uh, if you're going to be a purposeful company, if, you're, if you focus on stakeholder capitalism, you have to focus on your your employees, your clients, the community where you work. And if you do that well, you're going to create durable profitability for your shareholders. See, what, what are the biggest risks you see for the companies that aren't moving fast enough? To so, yeah, and so we're already seeing that. Um, as I said, $4 trillion of money has moved into more sustainable strategies, whether that is investing in a TPG fund like yours 
We're investing in a new index, a new liability that has more sustainable characteristics. So they're moving away from an S&P index or an MSCI index. All the traditional index or liabilities are moving to more, more of a sustainable one. If you're not a company that's focusing on these and moving forward, you're going to see a big reallocation of capital out, out of your stock. Your stock's going to underperform. And somebody else in your industry is moving more advanced, more quickly. They're going to get more of those inflows because they're going to be more of the sustainability indexes. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a bigger variance right now, Hank, between the companies are moving forward, the companies are stagnating. And you're seeing that in their multiples. And that's just beginning. This is just beginning. Imagine if all the state funds in the United States decided that as they are moving towards a more sustainable investment portfolio, that they are not going to invest in the S&P anymore. They're not going to invest in the MSCI any, anymore. They're going to invest in an S&P sustainable index or, or a BlackRock index or somebody else's index that has different characteristics. That is happening, and I think this is going to accelerate. And this is my warning to all the CEOs and boards that if you are not moving forward fast enough, you are going to see a reallocation of capital away from your stock. You're going to underperform versus your peers who are moving forward. And so I actually believe we're just at the beginning of this big reallocation of capital. So I agree. I see it big time. And I think these indexes are going to have a big effect and it's going to accelerate. Now, I want to talk a bit about greenwashing. Because, you know, one of the core challenges in green finance space is so-called greenwashing. You know, investing into projects that are labeled green without verification and that sure. do nothing to help environmental or climate. So, you know, I can think back a number of years ago, talking with a big development bank in China. They were talking about all, you know, the huge percentage of their investing that was in green. And I asked how they defined it. And they said, we're still working on that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so they had, they even had, you know, coal projects and so on as green. But now, this so that solution. But now I'm seeing people run around and environmentalists eating their their young and referring to things that I view as very legitimate, like carbon credits and so on to help finance the transition launching. So. Uh, so how do you look at greenwashing and what is BlackRock doing to address that that, that challenge? Well, on the macro level, um, our view of greenwashing may not be the same view of a, 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 a climate change activists. I mean, they believe humanity is now going to be in jeopardy and they believe at all costs we should we should correct this trend line at all costs. And all costs means they don't care about higher inflation. They don't care about a just transition. So from that standpoint, you know, I can't agree with that. Matt. But I, I met in Glasgow at the COP some environmentalists who believe that. They don't care. They believe they're on a mission to save humanity for, for our own sake. Okay, I, you know, politically, I don't think their vision is going to work. And so I'm trying to be a lot more pragmatic. But getting to what I believe greenwashing is all about, we're going to develop new taxonomies. I do believe the SEC, alongside the Europeans, are going to come up with a common taxonomy that we're going to, have to judge every company, you know, how to report, how to manage that. And I think that will help quite a bit in the greenwashing. One of my big issues that I, as you mentioned, my Venice speech, I believe the greatest source of greenwashing is when hydrocarbon companies sell their dirtiest hydrocarbons to private equity firms and privates. And 
that doesn't change the net zero of the world at all. It just moves it from a transparent vehicle to an opaque vehicle. To me, that's greenwashing. And I know a lot of environmentalists disagree with me with this. Uh, we need to find better solutions like what, what we did with banks, Hank, good bank, bad bank. We need to create those type of structures with these hydrocarbon companies, keep them public, create vehicles with carbon credits that they they sell at 25 or 40 percent of their hydrocarbons and keep it on the balance sheet. We can watch how the, the stream dissipates. They commit 100 percent of the proceeds goes into their, their advancement of green. And so there are many mechanisms we could do to truly advance the movement towards a more decarbonized world. But having a common taxonomy is going to help us judge companies, as you said, from that Chinese institution that if we could have a common taxonomy that we could judge a Chinese company through a European company through a U.S. company, that's what we need. We need a common taxonomy. And we're moving closer to that, but we're not there yet. And then there's, you know, there is an investment management company that has been accused by the SEC of really falsely claiming about how they're looking at their sustainable products. This is why we took the pathway at BlackRock that we're going to have our BlackRock Aladdin system to become, you know, Aladdin climate and developing the analytical tools so we could justify as a fiduciary on behalf of every asset owner why we think climate risk is investment risk. If we accomplish that, there's no greenwashing here. It, is, it may be wrong in a, on an investment decision, but that's not illegal being wrong in an investment decision. But we're going to have the documentation of information to make those decisions and do it well. But if we are truly in hope of changing the curve of hydrocarbons, in my mind, we need to be reimagining the world. And the first thing we need to reimagine is not to allow a liquidation of hydrocarbons from hydrocarbon companies. We need to keep those assets in public hands, in public vehicles, so we can see through great transparency how are they moving forward. And Larry, you're so right. In finance, as in everything else, but maybe even more so than most other things, transparency is critically important. And you can't have transparency unless you have a common language, okay, taxonomy. Otherwise, there is no transparency. Correct. So now let's talk about something you and I have talked about a lot. We have a very similar view about voluntary climate targets set at UN conferences like Paris and Glasgow. These are important, but we are not going to come close to meeting the climate challenge unless the rich countries give the private sector, give the banks, give finance, give industry the tools they need to provide the subsidies or incentives or technologies which decarbonize industrial processes, correct? They also need to update, as you've said so eloquently, the charters of the multilateral development banks. What's going to happen if the rich countries don't step up and do what they need to do? How do you see this playing out? So <clears throat> we're in a pathway right now of governments not having the ability to do enough. That's my opinion at this moment. And they're asking all the public companies and banks to be the climate police, which I think is going to lead to really bad polarization of big and small, many other attended problems with this. The most important thing, and this is why you created your fund uh, at TPG, we're not going to get to a decarbonized world. That's a path we're going right now. Unless we can really start investing in new technologies and rapidly come up with some breakthroughs, it is just not going to happen fast enough. 
Two, it is estimated for the emerging world to be decarbonized. For the next 30 years, it's estimated we need as much as $30 trillion, a trillion dollars a year. Right now, the emerging world is getting maybe 100 to $150 billion a year in terms of health and aid and investments. So if we are serious about this, the emerging world minus China is 34% of the hydrocarbons and growing. The use of coal is growing. And so we need to move forward as a world in unity. And I don't see that. I see the U.S. and Europe moving faster than other parts of the world. And it's going to create more global and geopolitical issues. If we only ask the U.S. hydrocarbon companies to decarbonize and the European companies to decarbonize. And so what we need really quick, we need long-term planning. And this is what's lacking today. I think it was even lacking, you know, my observations from COP. We need to be working with governments, public and private, working together. You know, Hank, we had a miracle in, in the last, you know, year. It took us less than eight months to create a vaccination. And now we are creating, you know, pills that could save almost everybody from any extreme COVID illnesses. That was done by a lot of public spend, but through Western capitalism. So it was a combination of public and private to advance this in a very rapid way. Climate change and climate risk is far more difficult because we are changing the the foundation of the industrialization, which is hydrocarbons, and we have to rid every business from that. And to do that is going to require a huge amount of long-term planning. It, uh, it's going to require a combination of public and private uh, working together to invest, to find those breakthrough technologies. And then we have to reimagine the role of the World Bank and the IMF if we we're ever going to get enough finance into the emerging world. Private sector capital is not going to seek returns to the degree that is necessary in the emerging world. It's just too risky. The IMF and the World Bank Charter was created 80 years ago, and their charter has not changed since. And right now they are the senior lender, and they want the private sector to be the junior lender. That's just not happening in brownfield investments in the emerging world. And we really want to change this. And so we need... This has to be front and center if we're going to move the world together forward. We have to focus on our multilateral institutions. We have to refocus on how, what is their mandate. And if they provided, just like what we learned in securitization with mortgages and other assets, if they provided the mezzanine or the first loss piece, you would have trillions of dollars of private capital. We saw that BlackRock announced we raised a fund with the government of Germany and France providing the first loss piece. So this is the biggest public-private environmental fund. We created, they're, they're providing the first loss piece. And the private investors that we raised, they're willing to take an OECD valuation, not emerging market valuation, an OECD pricing. So it's ultimately very cheap financing for the emerging world to, to develop sustainable you know, investments in their countries. We can raise trillions of dollars that way, and but we, you know, we have we have the model. We did this with France and Germany, and OECD pricing for you know for Northern African countries is a pretty remarkable thing. Now we got to work on the projects and all that, but that's what we need to do, and we need to do it more rapidly.
Yes, but Larry, the interesting thing is that the private sector is, in my judgment, so much farther ahead of the government on this. Totally. So, so what you've done, the private sector, you've given them a model, right? You've given them a model. But they can't just pound on the World Bank and the IMF and the multilateral development banks. It's the big countries that are the shareholders that own them. They, they have, have to change the charter, yes. They have to change the charter. They have to do that's what you've shown the light on, number one. Yep. And number two, which I, again, will emphasize that I've seen all this ambition at the private sector level, at companies, CEO after CEO, industry after industry, making net zero pledges, investing in new technologies. But unless they get the tools, which only governments can give them, okay, unless they get the tools they need, I see all this ambition, you know, crashing up against a system unable to absorb it right now, unable to absorb it. We're going to have sort of a climate finance crash. So the governments need to step up. And yes. you said that. You said it eloquently and, you know, in a nicer way than I've just said it. But you've really shown a light on that. But I'd like to now move on risk to opportunity. Because you also made a point I want to pick up on when you, in answer to your last question. There are going to be some huge generational opportunities as well as major dislocations that come out of rewiring a global economy which is relying on fossil fuels for generations. Yeah. This will be the largest and most difficult industrial transition in history, and it will take decades. But there's also, as you rewire society, there will be a huge investment up there. Yes. Talk a bit about that. It was announced in Glasgow that the financial services companies committed $130 trillion of balance sheet and investment opportunities over the next 30 years. And I said, can you imagine a world where $130 trillion is going to investing into, into new technologies, into fortifying our cities? And fortifying our, our, our countries and, and building out the emerging world so they could grow economically. Can you imagine a world where this $130 trillion is creating new opportunities, new jobs? And so there's no question in our mind, in all, all the research that we, we have determined, the whole movement towards a decarbonized world is going to create huge investment opportunities and huge job opportunities for those those countries and cities and states that are focusing on this. The big issue we have is it may lead to job creation in one part of the world and not in another part. It may create opportunities in one locality in the U.S. and not another. These are some of the issues why it requires long-term planning. I mean, think about this. If we're going to really do a great job of sequestering carbon, the problem is sequestering carbon is generally, you know, you're going to sequester carbon in, in, in geological formations where generally there's not that many people around. Well, the carbon creation isn't where a lot of people are. And so how do we transport, the, you know, the carbon to different areas? It's, so it's going to be creating different jobs, different locations. It may require big pipelines to these, you know, these abandoned oil fields and gas fields that are in great geologic formation where we can recarbonize those fields by extracting it out of the air and different things. But it requires planning. It requires systematic planning, moving the carbon from one area where it's being produced 
to a place where it could be sequestered. I, you know, I just don't see government focusing on those type of ideas. But the opportunity is enormous, and it's going to be huge private sector opportunities, huge opportunities. And as I said, that's why we are so excited about it as a firm with two-thirds of our assets being retirement. We believe these investments are going to lead to great long-term investments on behalf of the retirees and the asset owners that we are managing their assets for. And so we look at this as probably the most exciting thing in my professional career. And in addition, if we could also aggressively invest in nascent new technologies to advance quickly the new technologies to eliminate carbon, this is going to be fantastic. You know, one little simple thing, if all human beings just stopped eating beef and we started eating synthetic meat or uh, vegetarian meat, what people don't realize, cows are responsible for 6% of the carbon footprint in the world. Airplanes that gets all the publicity represents 0.85, less than 1% of the carbon footprint. I mean, so there's all these things we have to understand what's causing carbon and how do we now change it. So much of it's going to have to be consumer preference changes, too. Yeah. So this this industrial transformation is just huge, you know, from a world that's 80 percent reliant on carbon. You know, so it's it's not just, you know, how we generate electricity or provide transportation for growth. Right. But how we produce the food we eat, make the things, you know, that, that we need to make like cement and plastics and, you know, and steel and so on. So it's really sort of amazing. And the technology shifts, you know, I was saying to someone the other day, you know, the first great internet company, not great first internet company was AOL, right? And, you know, AOL certainly didn't become Google. And, you know, I, I don't think Tesla is going to be AOL, but, but it, they very well may not become Google. I mean, you know, we're going to see new technologies roll out, you know, business models are going to shift. It's, it's going to be a lot of a lot of dislocation, a lot of painful dislocation, and a lot of opportunity. But let's shift gears now and close with a very different subject. What advice do you give to young people who are starting their careers and who might be interested in being an entrepreneur? Well, I start with a bigger foundational statement to all of them first go have a career where you are going to be passionate if you want to be a school teacher you're only going to be a great school teacher if you're passionate about educating young minds and you're passionate and so i do believe the key is what what drive that you know the internist the inner being of that human what is driving you what are you passionate about uh it is you know the difference between so many people that I could see in, in, in finance, those who are just doing it as a job, they don't generally do that well. Those who are passionate about what they're doing, they believe in their mission, they believe in their purpose, they go much further. And so, you know, when I talk to our young people who join the firm at BlackRock, I tell them that if you're not passionate about what, what you're going to do here, this is not the right job for you. And it might be a mistake. Go where you're passionate. Go in the field that you're really passionate about. Two, the one thing I try to tell every young person, if you believe that your schooling is ended, your official schooling may be ended, and you, if there's a moment in time when you stop learning, stop growing, someone's passing you by. 
And so this is why I think it's really important that you go to an or, you know an area, a firm, a industry, whatever that may be that you're passionate about. Because when you're passionate about it, you have this thirst, this drive to learn and grow and and build. And if you can continue to do that, you're you, you know you're going to have a fabulous career. Uh, you know the opportunity related to sustainability is. is much bigger than what the opportunity I had when I started the mortgage desk in 1976. And I, I think it's going to transform the industrial complex of the world. And so the implication of this is far bigger than just housing. And so if you're passionate about sustainability and if you're passionate about capital markets, and that's the difference between, in my mind, about sustainability and because finance now understands it, and, and you know, finance is going to be the real key that's driving this change more than any other area. And quite frankly, you know, we have learned from uh, the NGOs who have been beating on us, but because they were more correct than, the, than we were. But so the combination of working with governments, working with philanthropy and academia, and then working with finance, I think we could conquer this. We don't have to be pessimistic, Hank. We could. If we put our minds to it, if we get everybody working together, we will have these breakthrough technologies. So we are going to be able to reduce uh, the threat of carbon on, on the world and humanity. But if we don't come together and you're pessimistic that we, can, you know, we can't come together, then it's going to be a grim outcome. I, as I said earlier, I look at what happened when we had the threat of COVID destroying the world and capitalism. Good government policy worked. And then the, uh, the back of great monetary policy and fiscal stimulus, you know, the, the world economies are, have, are flourishing again. And so we could do this. It's a bigger problem than COVID ever was. It's a bigger problem than anything that we have ever encountered in our, in our careers. This is bigger than the financial crisis of 09 for the world. This is the biggest crisis we've ever felt. It just doesn't feel as immediate. But we have to get everybody's attention now. Yeah, and what you said, you know, you said so clearly is this huge opportunity and this huge challenge because it's going to take trillions and trillions of dollars of finance. Governments aren't going to have it. We're going to need a Marshall private sector capital. That won't come to invest in a loss. So government's going to have to give them the tool. But this mm. climate finance is going to be key. Yeah. And what you said about young people, I think, is very similar to what I say. Very similar. You can afford almost anything other than not to learn. You've got to keep learning. And so a key is intellectual curiosity. It's hard to be curious about something you don't care about, right? Correct. So, yeah. So, so, you, so you've, got to, you've got to pick a career that, in a job that really interests you. And Larry, thank you very, very much. You've given us all a lot to think about. This has been terrific. Well, Hank, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk with you. You're you're one of America's heroes, and with how you led America and the world out of a big financial crisis, we both have to now lead the way in this global crisis. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.